morning, glory, America, bonjour, hi, Canada. That music means I am Hugh Hewitt, and the Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. Each week, the last radio hour of the week is devoted to a conversation between me and Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, that lantern of the north, uh, sometimes with one of his colleagues, sometimes with somebody completely different. This week with just Dr. Arn, I threw a curveball at him this week because of some events. Uh, Dr. Arn, good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. First, I wanted to read to people the statement you put out on the passing of Rush Limbaugh, who was your friend. You sponsored this show, but before you sponsored this show, you sponsored Rush's show. And you got to be friends with him, and you wrote on the 17th of February, My friend Rush Limbaugh, who died today, was a force of nature. More than any other individual, he was responsible for breaking the left's media monopoly. His voice on radio, where he has promoted Hillsdale College for more than 10 years, will never be equaled. He loved our country always and came to a deep love of God. His massive audience will miss him, I will miss him, and the country will miss him. Our prayers go out to his family. Rest in peace. Now, will you tell this audience how you became friends with Rush? Well, I, I always explain it with this sentence. I've lived a weird life. <laughs> <laughs> I've known Hugh Hewitt and Mark Levin for a long time before they got into radio, and Rush from his first important year in radio in Sacramento, California. Uh, you're a Californian, and you know, yep. you know that uh, there was a time when, if you went to California, if you went to Sacramento, uh, the, the cab driver would have on Rush Limbaugh, a talk show guy, and I said once, "That's interesting," and uh, he said, "Oh, everybody's listening to this guy." And, you know, that's just before, then, then he, right after he moved to New York, and then his career took off. But uh, then I met him in the Clarion Hotel. Somebody pointed him out to me, and I went over and shook his hand. And that was whatever year that was. That was 20 years ago. Uh, so uh, one way and another, I stayed connected to him. And, uh, you know, I introduced him at a couple of things. He came to talk for the Claremont Institute and then once for the college. And... I, I discovered at those events that he was shy. He's a very shy man. He's he's not like you. He's uh he's he's he he would prefer to be alone reading, except with very close friends. Uh and you know, he lost his hearing and uh uh I'm told by people even closer to him than I ever was that uh he preferred to to meet with people that he had already met because he tune in their voice better. So, I, I, you know, for 10 years or 12 years, I went to see him every year. Uh, he, he, uh, he would talk about the college on the radio just because he liked it, and there'd be a huge response. And then one day he called me and said, I want you to advertise on my show. And I replied, that's an interesting idea. And I thought about it for a while. I didn't do anything. Well, and in the, in the interim... He sent Craig Kitchen, who's his producer, twice to the college to visit and sit through Aristotle class. Huh. <laughs> and, you know, I said, I said, poor Craig. I said, gosh, he's torturing you. He said, no, this is okay. Um, and then Obama said, right after he got elected, to a bunch of congressmen, you have to stop listening to Rush Limbaugh. And I believe that the specific job of the president of the United States is to protect our right to listen to whatever we want to. Uh, presidents don't believe that much anymore, but that's what it's about. And so I came in the next week and I said, we're going to figure out this week if we're going to advertise on Rush Limbaugh. 
And uh, one of my colleagues said, President made you mad, did he? And I said, a little bit. Well, so we- my my favorite line, which I think I heard from you, I may have heard from uh, Mrs. Arne, and I may have heard from Mark Levin, is that Rush enjoyed when you visited because he didn't have to talk. Yeah. <laughs> the stinker said that on the air. <laughs> 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 Yeah, I would sit and talk to him, you know, for an hour and a half, which is a long time for both of us. And it, it was always on Friday afternoon. It was always right after his show. Uh, Rush was very curious about college. Rush didn't go to college. And, you know, why is it great? And what? What? tell me about it. What? What happens in a college? And he just was a sponge for information about that. And then, of course, he would... Uh, turn it into music when he talked about it the the monday after i had been to see him which i did about once a year he would always you know you get you know how radio works you get you get some number of seconds right well he would go on for 20 minutes and uh and relate our conversation you know better than i ever put it uh yeah so i i did i loved him well now i have to tell you the second thing I wanted the reason we broke. We were supposed to talk about John Winthrop this week, and I often throw a curveball at Doctor Arn, and he he takes it, he hits it. We'll get to the important subject next. But I also got an email this week from Young Charlie Kirk, yeah. with whom you served on the 1776 Commission, and Young Charlie Kirk has discovered the Hillsdale Dialogue, yeah. and he likes him a lot. Yeah, and he sent me a note, and he said, "This is great," and and, and like Rush. No formal education, autodidact. And so what the Hillsdale Dialogue does for Charlie is it starts at the beginning and it goes to the current. And sometimes it'll go back, for example, our last two weeks on Grant. By the way, Rush sounds like Grant. Grant was silent and stony cold in a crowd. And you couldn't shut him up when he got together with his old buddies. Uh, He was a conversationalist of few equals. But I find it interesting that Charlie who's going to fill a role like Rush over the years, he's building his show now, is using the Hillsdale Dialogue in the way that Rush used you to learn. Yeah. Rush, you know, here's another thing. Uh, Your listeners won't believe it, but being a talk radio show host is very hard work. And uh, you've got to prepare and you've got to think. And so that that, – Let's let's keep Dennis Prager, though, on one – that doesn't apply to Dennis, but go ahead. Otherwise, that's – Yeah, he just talks about God all the time. Yeah, all the God all the time. (laughs) He's – so, you know, Rush – you know, Rush got really rich. And uh, you know, at least I read in the paper. And on the other hand, he worked 14 hours a day. Every day. uh, All his life. And he, he didn't really want to do anything. He had some friends. He had a close circle of friends, which I was, I guess, on the periphery of. And, and you know, they were mostly people, Gay Gaines and Stanley Gaines, her husband, who lived near him in Palm Beach. And so he had buddies, you know. And he loved to be around them, loved to have dinner with them, although, you know, dinner, dinner was a challenge for him because he couldn't hear very well in a, in a noisy room. And so he loved that. But then what he loved the most of all, is he loved to work, and he put so much into that show. It uh, seems effortless when you listen to it, but there was a huge effort sustained over the course of his whole adult life. And this is an Aristotelian question. Where does humor come from? Because he was the funniest natural comedian on the radio. A lot of, a lot of people can have funny bits. 
A lot of people can have funny days. You might even have a good funny week or a funny month. But to be consistently funny, witty, is difficult. It's you know, Churchill was witty. Disraeli was witty. I'm not sure which American president I would say was witty. W occasionally had a witticism. Trump occasionally had a witticism. But I mean, day in and day out, and it got him into trouble sometimes, but Rush was funny. Yeah, it's how you see the world, right? Um, if, uh, if you think that the thing that you're working on is the most serious thing of all, and if it's not, you know, your family or God or a real duty to your country, it isn't. You know, and, and even family and country are below God. And so people who think that, uh, we're going to talk about such people in a minute, who think that the thing they're working on is utterly serious and all-important, well, then I think those people have trouble being funny. <laughs> Whereas somebody who thinks, yeah, it's a wide world, we're talking about a part of it, but there's other stuff, too, and let's laugh some. Let's laugh and let's be aware that no matter how important the events are, eventually you're going to be... You're going to be crushed into two paragraphs if you're a president of the United States. The only things that really last are institutions. And the people who build institutions are those who can find humor in life. You know, Lincoln was a, a, maybe the funniest president. Do you think I'm right about that? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, he's the funniest president. And uh, why do you think that is? Because he's the wisest president? Because Montaigne said a constant cheerfulness is the surest sign of wisdom. I think he's right. Yeah, that's right. You know, my favorite Lincoln is uh, Joe Hooker, who led the army to disaster at Chancellorsville and was a very competent general, uh, except for that and such things. He he wrote, said uh, a, a note to Lincoln, from my headquarters in the saddle. And Lincoln read it in the cabinet and said, General Hooker has his headquarters where his hindquarters are supposed to be. <laughs> Quickly, and that's just being quick, being funny. I'll be right back because now we have to turn to college, what it's supposed to do and what it isn't doing in Northampton, Massachusetts. Hillsdale and Smith compared next on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Somewhere in the world, news is happening. You'll hear it here first, but only if you're here when Hugh Hewitt continues. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. My guest is Dr. Larry R. Now, Hillsdale College is a special place, hillsdale.edu. It can, it can work with anything. Dr. Arn, you know British historian Andrew Roberts. I do. Well, I had him on last week for uh, my podcast, which is available at, at uh, Apple and everywhere. And I want to play for you a bit of Andrew Roberts' podcast. You may not know about him. Cut number 10. Well, there are two questions there. One, if your father was an Oxford man, how did you end up at Cambridge? Uh, because he was also at the same school I went to, which I was expelled from. <laughs> <laughs> All right, why? We're going why? into areas that I don't usually go into on radio shows, Hugh. <laughs> well, this is the podcast and a radio show, and people, you can't leave that out on the table and then not take a nibble. <laughs> It was it was a combination of potentially utterly disastrous combination of drinking and climbing. 
Oh, what a surprise. I used to get drunk and climb up buildings. And I think, quite rightly, the school thought that the sooner they got rid of me, uh, the less likely they were going to be involved in some tragic disaster. So, Dr. and I play that because I'm sure you have some excellent students at Hillsdale who've been involved in hijinks like Andrew Roberts. So they're on their way to becoming Pulitzer Prize winning historians. I wanted you to know that. Well, you know that the difference between the sexes is fluid. On the other hand, it's only boys who do things like that. (laughs) (laughs) It's just predictable. Somebody comes and tells me somebody's done something really stupid, and I always say, find that boy. (laughs) Find that boy. (laughs) Now, I wanted to start with the positive. Hillsdale, we're about to talk about Smith College. Smith College is 145 years old. Hillsdale is 170 years old. So you don't get in these jams because you've been doing it longer. You've been practicing. And for 170 years, the charters remain unchanged, correct? Well, that's right. Exactly right. 175 years. And what is the core of that charter? Well, uh, the the most relevant part to what we're talking about right now is that uh, uh, college is an activity for the human being. And the human being is a unique thing in nature. It has a rational soul, which is, uh, its rational capacity is the same thing as speech. Speech and reason are the same thing. And then it has a body. And like, like dogs and cats and horses, they get hungry, they eventually go, get old and die, they have to sleep. And so we're a very complex being. We're a very interesting being. And so college is, uh, you know, in the, in the great liberal arts tradition, is to figure out what we are and where we fit in the order of nature. And that's a common task. The word college means partnership. It's something people are supposed to do together. And it isn't what we think today in the tradition, and in my opinion, in reason, it isn't just comparing different perspectives. It's rising above perspectives. We don't, you know, at Hillsdale, we always say, uh, somebody says, well, my perspective, and I say, yeah, why is that interesting? Uh, you know, if you, if you ask somebody my favorite question, which is Socrates' favorite, what is the good? What is it for a thing to be good? They, at Hillsdale, we know better than to say my perspective. <laughs> or they learn quickly. Yeah, because I'll, I'll say, you're changing the subject now, right? <laughs> is it a thing? Because if it is a thing, and if, we, if you and I have mutually exclusive perspectives, then that's impossible, or else it's not a thing. It's just something that each of us has, and it's different for each of us. And, and so, you know, that's, that's the great thing. You know, that's why Socrates got killed, right? He was always calling into question people's perspectives. But because and, college is in a crisis, college generally in the United States, I would assume that Hillsdale is swamped with applications because yeah, you're we, still doing college. Yeah, we, you know, our standards have risen to a absurd place, and we're turning down about as many at that high level as we take, and so it's very hard to make the distinctions anymore. And because, uh, and and that is because you're doing college. I think this is Hugh Hewitt's opinion. Because you're doing college, and any serious parent who is listening to us talk about Hillsdale and about to talk about Smith is going to say to their daughter, why don't you apply to Hillsdale? You may not apply to Smith. I think that's actually what's going to happen, and we'll talk about why after the break with the help of Tucker Carlson. 
in his monologue last night in the New York Times yesterday. Stay tuned, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. You're in the middle of a nonstop action-packed information blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. Hillsdale, a great sponsor of the Hugh Hewitt Show. And this week, we are talking now about Smith College. There was an article in the New York Times yesterday exploring the meltdown over race at Smith. And Dr. Arn, have you had a chance to read the New York Times article yet? Uh, no, summarize it for me. All right. It is a, a long-running saga of a student who believed that she was a victim of her race at the hands of blue-collar employees who are white, a security guard, cafeteria worker, and it made up the substance of Tucker Carlson's monologue last night, so let's play it. Two billion dollars. Tuition there for a single year is more than 75,000 per year. So here's the question, and it's relevant now. Who has more privilege, the people of Springfield or the women of Smith College? You'd think that'd be an easy question. One place is famous for burned out buildings and murders. The other has wrought iron gates and its nationally known art museum on campus. So Smith has more privilege, correct? No, not correct. The ladies of Smith are oppressed. They are victims. And do you know who's oppressing them? The kind of people who live in Springfield. Now, we learned all of this recently from a Smith student called Umu Kanote. Kanote is an exotic name, but she has a resume that could only come for the most established kind of background. Kanote is from New York. She went to boarding school in Connecticut at a place called Westminster. Then she headed to Smith. The schools she attended charge more than the average American makes in a year. That sounds like the definition of privilege, doesn't it? But not so fast. Watch this tape from July 31st, 2018. This is the moment that Umu Kanote found out that she was oppressed. Hi. How are you doing? Good, how are you? I was wondering why you were here. Oh, I was eating lunch. I'm working the summer program, so I was just relaxing on the couch. Oh, you just taking a break? No. Yeah. So you're one of, one of, with one of the summer programs? Yeah, I'm actually a TA. Okay. Yeah. So that's what it was. All right. You just said from the doorway, you didn't know what it was. Lunch is over with, so it's probably... Yeah, I, I mean, it's okay. It's just like kind of stuff like this happens way too often where people just feel like threatened. So that's not a very interesting piece of tape, actually. Everyone's polite. Seems like some kind of misunderstanding. Nothing really happens. But later that night, Kanote posted a message to Facebook assessing what had happened. What you just saw, she said, was proof of vicious racial discrimination. Quote, all I did was be black. It's outrageous that some people question my being at Smith College and my existence overall as a woman of color. End quote. Kanote claimed that what you just saw was a racial attack. Not just against her, but against all people who look like her. Then she accused a cafeteria worker, a woman called Jackie Blair, of being a racist, even though Blair was not involved in the episode. Now, that story didn't make sense. None of it did. And yet institution after institution took her side over the side of an hourly worker, and they did so immediately. The ACLU claimed that Kenote had been singled out for, quote, eating while black. The media came to the same conclusion. A few days after that tape was shot, Kenote appeared on Good Morning America on ABC to explain that she doesn't feel safe at Smith anymore, even in its art gallery or botanical garden. 
This young lady calls the entire situation outrageous, and she's sharing her story so that no other woman of color goes through what she went through. I'm so, so upset. This is Umu Kanute. She's a sophomore at the college, working as a teacher's assistant and residential advisor over the summer. She was confronted by campus police officers. I see the cop walk in with a Smith employee whom I've never seen before. And um, the man asked me, uh, we were wondering why you're here. Kanute, still emotional over it all, says she was very nervous and overwhelmed after the incident. It just still upsets me to just talk about it because I don't I don't even feel safe on my own campus and I'm away from home. I'm the first in my family to go to college. Well, in response to this, the president of Smith College, Kathleen McCartney, did not wait for an investigation to find out exactly what had happened. No, she moved against the person who made less immediately. She suspended the janitor the first day. Then she launched white accountability seminars to immediately re-educate and browbeat all white employees at Smith. But even as she singled out her colleagues on the basis of their skin color, McCartney declared in a statement that singling people out because of their skin color is wrong. And then she concluded with no evidence whatsoever that that is exactly what you saw in that tape. Quote, this painful incident reminds us of the ongoing legacy of racism and bias in which people of color are targeted while simply going about the business of their ordinary lives. But it didn't stop there. What happened next is documented at length in a recent piece in the New York Times. Here's a short version. Jackie Blair and the other employees who were falsely accused of racism by the school had their lives completely upended. Canute posted Blair's name, her photograph, her email address on social media, and then called her a, quote, racist. Canute also published the name and photograph of a janitor who was not even involved in the episode. Then people showed up at Blair's home, threatening her, putting threatening letters in her mailbox. In the end, an investigation found no evidence of racism in this incident, but Smith effectively ignored the investigation and its results. Kathleen McCarthy, the president of the school, announced, quote, it is impossible to rule out the potential role of implicit racial bias. In other words, the janitor, the cafeteria worker, the security guard can't prove they're not racist. They probably are implicitly. Meanwhile, Kathleen McCarthy issued no public apology of any kind to the employees she had just slandered or suspended. Neither did Kenote or the ACLU apologize. They claimed that workers targeted Kenote for her skin color, and they kept claiming that. Consider this remarkable statement from a man called Rashawn Hall. He's both the racial justice director for the ACLU of Massachusetts and Kenote's lawyer. Quote, it's troubling that people are more offended by being called racist than by the actual racism in our society. Allegations of being racist, even getting direct mailers in their mailbox, is not on par with the consequences of actual racism. In other words, if you're falsely accused of racism and you don't like it, that's evidence you're racist, especially if you're a janitor. You could not find a more perfect distillation of the moment we are living through right now. Here we have in Kenote, one of the most privileged people on planet Earth, telling us that she is being oppressed by her servants. And yet, rather than getting laughed out of the room or sent for a psych evaluation, all the other privileged people nod in vigorous agreement with her and start punishing the staff. We're going to look back at moments like this one in shame. The question is, why didn't anyone speak up while it was happening? At Smith, at least one woman did. Her name is Jody Shaw. She went to Smith. She worked there as a librarian. She loved the school. Smith planned to stay. But when woke politics became a racial caste system, 
a system in which students and teachers were favored or punished because of the way they look, she opted out. Now, Dr. Arn, Jody Shaw has issued a number of videotapes. I played both of them on the show yesterday, and she said the ubiquity of re-education has driven her away. And it is reminiscent of Darkness at Noon, which you and I discussed on this show for a long period of time, self-confession, and of Maoist self-criticism. And it seems to me that it is sweeping the country and that there's only one place that ends. Everybody is guilty. Well, not everybody. Uh, I, I, I think we're, I think Tucker put the point very well, we're developing a ruling class in America. And, and uh, it tends to be people who are rich and who are in important positions, and they tend to be victims, too, at the same time. And, you know, you just look at the way the, uh, the uh, what, the Ch- National Chamber of Commerce and the biggest corporations and the left cooperate now. So it's, there's a power behind this, and it is a set of doctrines about power that can, you know, because... You know, first of all, if somebody was rude, if, if one of my employees was rude to a student, well, that, you know, I'd do something about that. But the employee is a human being, too, and so you have to find out if, in fact, they were. And, you know, that's in a, in a, in a reasonable atmosphere, which, thank God, we have here so far, uh, people understand the right of that. Um, so, it, you know, that... She was, you know, I've read the investigative report, and I've read three or four articles about this, and I divine that uh, the the building was closed for a reason. It was closed for cleaning. It's COVID, right? So nobody mentions that, but I bet that was relevant to it. And so somebody's in there, and nobody knows who it is, right? And so the man walks up politely and says to her, you know, why are you here, and you're not supposed to be here, and that this that's all he did and uh and so this you know i've got the investigative report here by the law firm and that says that they find uh no sufficient evidence that the reported party that's that woman young woman uh was discriminated against with respect to the incident the incidents the cop or the campus cop walking up to her so no evidence right and that man's been disciplined and that just, you know, that's just the very definition of injustice. And a woman unconnected with the incident completely has been threatened and has been branded a racist. And Jody Shaw's had to leave the job that she loves because she will not be reeducated. This is, I, I, you know, Smith has its own problem, but it is emblematic of what is sweeping through American education, both private and public. I don't think it's hit Hillsdale. Now, how many years have you been the president at Hillsdale College? Almost 21. And so how many times do you think you've had to arbitrate disputes between students or between students and faculty or between student faculty and staff and between town and gown? Well, you know, it's it's not as common as you would think, but very many. Uh, You know, if it gets to me, it's, you know, so there might be one or two a year that come to my office. And... You know, how do you deal with them? Once in a while, somebody does something pretty bad. And, you know, I have dismissed from the college 11 students in 21 years. And it almost always involves alcohol. And, you know, they're not supposed to be drinking in the dorms, and by and large they don't. But off campus they do, and, you know, and they're young, and they make mistakes, 
right? And and I, you know, I don't I, I don't like to disrupt the career of any young person. We're supposed to be helping them, and so that hardly ever happens. But when it happens, it can be you know there was a uh, I won't give any names, but there was a case, and it's got to be 18 years ago now, where a boy groped a girl on the dance floor, and then. He said something bad to the dean, the vice president for student affairs, happens to be a woman. And and uh, I learned of it, and I called him in, and I just gave him the worst tongue lashing in the world. And I got him to read his, his, uh, his, his, you know, I had his copy of the honor code, and I said, is that your signature? And he said, well, yes, it is. And I said, read it to me. And then I said, uh, are you in a fraternity? I happened to know he was. And he said, I am. And I said, is this the creed of your fraternity? And he, he read that. He, they, they have to memorize those, by the way. So he recited it to me. And I said, look at the highlighted sentence. And the highlighted sentence was, honor to women on all occasions. And, you know, when he read that out, he just got really small. And I said to him quietly, I said, did you say a foul word to my dean of women today? And he, you know, he got smaller still. Oh, he's a boy's a football player. He's a fine boy, by the way. And he, and he got smaller still. And then I said, "Say one to me." <laughs> and you know, he wouldn't. And uh, and what was his punishment? I said, uh, "You know, I have the power to erase four years from your life." He was a senior. I don't want to do that. He said, "What can I do?" And I said, "You need to make this right." And uh, he said, how do I do it? And I said, I don't know. I didn't make this mess. Well, what he did was he went and begged the young woman in question and the dean of women for forgiveness and swore to them that he would never do such a thing again. And the next morning, they both showed up in my office to intercede for him. And so I didn't do anything to him, right? I, I mean, uh, that that's afternoon. How, that's grace. Yeah. That's that, unmerited that grace. My, my uh, yeah, you got to go. It, uh. I'll tell about I'll tell about the final step in this because it's a really great story. Don't go anywhere, America. Hillsdale.edu is where you want your sons and daughters to go to college. Stay tuned. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu including an application to attend it. Dr. Arndt, what happened to the student on whom's behalf the two women he had offended came and begged for mercy in your office? Uh, he came back to my office and asked to see me again, and I refused. I said, tell the boy I'm tired of him. <laughs> well, well, two hours later, I come out. It's 5 o'clock, and he's still sitting there. And I said, what do you want? And he said, I came to be punished. And I said, punished? He said, Yes, sir. He said, you're right. That was bad. I said, are you ever going to do anything like that again? And he said, no, I will never. And I said, good. I don't want to punish you. I'm here to be your friend. And he cried, right? Now, if what he had done had been worse, because, you know, what he did was bad, but there are degrees of bad, and if the girl, the young woman, had not been forgiving of him, that would have been a different situation. And I've had that situation, and I have done the ultimate thing I can do. But uh, in that case, and you know that, that uh, I've been picked up twice on the stage, giving out degrees at commencement, 
And both times it happened. They were both very large young men, and I had gotten near to throwing them out of the college. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> now, I have a point I want to make. The, the parent that is listening or the student who is driving to school or is in the back seat has to decide where to go to college. And on the one hand, there are college that promise you great network effects. That's an economic term. The advantage of going to Harvard is that people of importance and position have gone to Harvard before you and you got a network, or Stanford or Yale or uh, the University of Michigan. There are lots of places where network effects exist. Hillsdale now is where they are when it comes to network effects. You have Supreme Court clerks, you have uh, legislative aides, you have people in the White House, you have people of both parties. Does it make a lick of sense for any parent to advise their child to go to a Smith where the atmosphere is like Smith's atmosphere, as we just discussed, over Hillsdale? I, I, I know you are not an unbiased witness, but just objectively, the network effects are the same. There is no longer an argument. Is there? Well, the network effects are the same, but in somewhat different worlds, of course. And, uh, and you know, it, there are places if you come to Hillsdale College where you will not be welcome. Uh, but there are many, many high places where you will be. But that, in the end, is not really the point, is it? I mean, the point is, college is a place where you develop your the most important assets you can possibly have, which is your intellect and your character. And if you build those things, then whether you make a lot of money or not, whether you occupy a high station or a low station, you're, you can live an excellent life. You can be happy. And you can know things that are beautiful to know and are the ultimate purpose of human life. And so the reason to go to Hillsdale College is if you want to know those things. And if and it has to be a high priority with you. You know, it's not – you just have to really want to do that. And uh, because it's hard, right, you're going to sit down and read Herodotus for, you know, and he's the first historian in the West – why would you do that, right? Well, there's power and beauty in there, beauty and power, to put them in the important order. Power at conveying beauty, at explaining how things are. You can see the world, and it takes a lot of stepping outside your own, by the way, because you have to address yourselves to things that happened eons ago. And, and that means that college is an expansive proposition. And that is why, if you go to hillsdale.edu, there is an endless loop running of various scenes that say, all have on them the statement, learning, character, faith, and freedom, colon. These are the inseparable purposes of Hillsdale College. That is not true of most colleges. No, well, they've... And see, there's a, the, the story of why this has happened is a very long story, right? And, and, and it's the, people should read uh, a political scientist at Williams College, which is the number one college in the nation. It's all, it, it sort of takes turns with Amherst being that. And th this is Daryl E. Paul, D-A-R-Y-L-E period Paul, P-A-U-L. And he wrote a, an essay that just terrified me. I have since met him. And it's called, uh, uh, let, me, let me get the exact title. It's in Aero Magazine, A-E-R-O, and, uh, and it's called, just a minute, Listening at the Great Awakening. 
And, you know, that hit Williams. And, and Williams, like Smith, is basically distracted by that. And everybody sees himself or herself now as a gender or a race or a something, right? And, and they don't see themselves as human beings meant to come together. Remember the word college means partnership. That means a common effort by people who uh, are going to learn something beautiful. And they have friendship because they have the same ends, right? So that's gone, right? And that's, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, ideology, to use the disease word of that, is fascinating and dangerous. But it is not gone. The purpose is not gone from Hillsdale, which is why you ought to go and look at hillsdale.edu. Thank you, Dr. Arn. Thank you, Adam and Dwayne. Thank you, Harley and Ben. I'll talk to you Monday on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. But you absolutely, positively need the truth. This is where you turn. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show.